I invite you to open your scriptures to Revelation chapter 1. And we do not dismiss our children on the first Sunday of every month because we believe uh, just as it is important for them to see mom and dad sing and our older generation sing praises to Jesus, it's also important for them to observe their parents, their believing parents, lift the symbols of Christ's broken body and his shed blood to their lips in dependence upon God. If we learn anything from our study of Revelation, and there are a lot of tangents that people go on no matter where you open Revelation to, uh, but if we learn anything from our study of Revelation, we must learn more about Jesus Christ, our King, Lord, Rescuer, Savior, and Friend. If we get to the end of the book of Revelation and we do not love Jesus more or know Christ more or worship Him with an undivided heart, then we have failed in reading Revelation properly. Revelation is one book in the 66-book canon of Scripture and it is unique. It is beautiful and it is powerful. This is what it's about. The certain triumph of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth. And for those of you who have been here, and we've made it now through 20 chapters of 22 chapters, we have seen that. We have seen the vivid imagery. We have seen some of the sequences that will take place. And we are convinced about the certain triumph of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth. But not everyone has responded well to this book. For example, Martin Luther, a name that we know very well, he said this, This is neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. I'm not trying to disparage Martin Luther. What I'm trying to do is highlight the danger of good people missing the big idea of Revelation. It's possible. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche said, a book of riddles that requires a revelation to explain it. American pamphleteer Thomas Paine said, the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. See, they're missing the point, and the point is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So I thought it would be helpful for us this morning as we prepare our hearts to observe communion together as we share a type of meal together. Of course, this is not going to be satisfying like your noon meal, uh, but this is a picture of a meal that we take together. And what we're saying to each other in eating this meal is that Christ is enough, that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that Christ is the Savior. Different than the other three people I mentioned, here's another testimony. A teenager shared his experience of reading Revelation from beginning to end. A teenager on a school day read Revelation from beginning to end. Just stop and savor that for a second, right? Here's a teen and he reads the entire book of Revelation and he says this, quote, The funny thing is, I am quite sure I didn't understand what on earth it was all about. But I can still remember the explosive power and beauty of it. The sense that the New Testament I held in my hands had a thunderstorm hidden inside it that nobody had warned me about. And that young man later became one of the world's most prominent contemporary biblical scholars. His name is N.T. Wright. 
Revelation 1.1. Look at the first verse. The revelation of or from who? Jesus Christ. It's right there, right in the beginning. And don't miss it like, oh, that's just the introduction. No, this is a revelation of and from Jesus Christ. What does revelation mean? We're 20 chapters into this. This, I believe, is the 32nd sermon just here at Highlands. Do we know what revelation means? It is the English form of the Greek word apocalypsis. And it does not mean destruction or the end of the world or zombies. Apocalypse simply means unveiling. It doesn't mean antichrist. It doesn't mean imminent rapture. Matter of fact, those are two terms people are surprised to find out aren't even mentioned in the book of Revelation. What it does mean is an unveiling. What does Revelation unveil? What does the unveiling unveil? It unveils the certain triumph and victory of Jesus Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords. We will see him this morning as faithful witness. We're going to look at him in five, sort of five different angles that Revelation presents him in. I like how Michael Gorman describes Revelation. He calls, he says, it is a book about following the Lamb into the new creation. This title expresses the conviction that Revelation is fundamentally a book about Christ, worship, and discipleship. It is possible that we get so caught up on terms that we have read about that we forget some of the most common themes. Here are the common themes of Revelation. Faithful witness. I rarely hear people talking about that from the book of Revelation. So when Luther says, we don't even know what it means to obey this book... This is what it means to obey this book. You are a faithful witness in the face of civil idolatry. That's how to obey that book. The throne of God. Rarely do I hear people talking about the majesty and glory of God and the Lamb from the book of Revelation. Victory. Worship. And Christ's identification as the Lamb. So as one person said, this book is not about the Antichrist It is about the living Christ. And that's what we need to focus on and allow to fuel our worship. Michael Gorman continues. He says, Revelation is primarily good news about Christ, the Lamb of God who shares God's throne and who is the key to the past, present, and future, and therefore also about uncompromising faithfulness leading to undying hope, even in the midst of unrelenting evil and oppressive empire. It's about first commandment faithfulness, to love God with all our heart. So since Revelation is an unveiling of a person, primarily, yes, it shows you sort of a, uh, events that are going to happen. It allows you to look into the future. But since it's about a person, as we are about to commune together, I want to look at Jesus Christ as faithful witness, the present one, the Lamb of God, the coming one, and the King of Kings. Okay, so track with me here. Look at Revelation 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ, you're going to have to jump right in the middle of the verse because I'm just going to pull this out. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Okay, what does that mean? So, if we are supposed to look at this book, there's a blessing for all who read it out loud. There's a blessing for those who hear it. And there's a blessing for those who keep what is written in it. How do we keep 
that. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Here's what it means. Jesus Christ remained true and faithful to his father despite temptation, hardship, persecution, and death. He was faithful. He was faithful on his Sabbath as the Jews would observe it. And he was faithful on his Tuesday as he followed the father. One theologian writes about faithful witness. He says the pattern of Christ as faithful witness shows Christian resistance to empire and idolatry that conforms to the world rather than the pattern of Jesus Christ as faithful witness and as apostles, saints, prophets like John who writes and martyrs. They were faithful, true, courageous, just, and nonviolent. It is not passive but active, consisting of the formation of communities and individuals who pledge allegiance to God alone, who live in nonviolent love toward friends and enemies alike, who leave vengeance to God and who by God's spirit create many cultures of life as alternatives to empires like Rome's, Babylon's and America's as alternatives to empires, culture of death. You can look at the culture of death just by reading the headlines. Headlines that just pertain to our country. Headlines about how people are interacting with people. Statements that are being made with clothing articles and tweets that are being sent out that create incredible divisiveness fueled from narcissism. Jesus, as a faithful witness, is putting forward an invitation to follow him in nonviolent witness in the midst of that kind of culture. Not to partake in it. Not to attend church Sunday morning and act like the world the rest of the week, but to follow Him in faithful witness into the new creation. So as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper, how are we to do this? How are we, how are we to be a faithful witness in the anti-God culture and workplace and country He has placed us in? And even as Steve was giving the update with the farmers, the the farmers are exampling Christ in a faithful witness. Speaking Christ when it may cost them their life. But how about us? It may not cost us our life, but it will cost us what? It will cost us comfort if you speak the name of Jesus to your people that you work with. It will cost us some embarrassment as people think we're absolutely ludicrous for believing in Jesus Christ. How do we follow Jesus in faithful witness as He is the faithful witness? Well, let's look at the second title. Jesus is the present one. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is the one who walks among communities of His followers, the church. He speaks both words of comfort and challenge through the Spirit. And he is the one who will be present in the last day on the day of wrath, the eschatological day of wrath, and in the new heaven and on the new earth. And at the great white throne judgment, he is the present one. On five occasions, Revelation explicitly calls itself a prophecy. But here's a mistake. Many people assume that prophecy only means the foretelling of future events. But in biblical tradition, prophecy was much more about speaking words of truth, comfort, confrontation in people's real-time historical settings. So even though Revelation does foretell future events, it is also about speaking words of comfort and challenge in these local churches' real-time historical setting. For example, 
Jesus Christ, the ever-present one, walks among the community of followers at Ephesus and he rebukes them for a love-deficient separatism. He says, you're doctrinal. You're separating from those who are false teachers. But you've abandoned your first love. And for us, we'd be like, what's the big deal? I mean, we're, you know, we're... We're doctrinal and we're separatists. So Jesus says, you need to repent. This is so serious that you have good doctrine and you're separating from false teachers, but you're not doing it with the love you initially had. That you need to repent or I'm going to remove this church from Ephesus. That's how serious it is. He commends them for their good doctrine and their separatism, but he does not commend them for the spirit in which they are holding it. We can be correct in our position, right in our doctrinal belief, and firm in our stance, but if we lack love, Jesus calls us to repent, to turn to Him. Why? Because He told us in John 13, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have what? That you have love for one another. The only way they're going to see your right doctrine, the only way they're going to realize the importance of separating to keep the gospel clean, in the eyes of a toxic world, is that you have love, that it actually has transformed your spirit and your heart. The second church, that he is the present one, he comforts the church at Smyrna. They are suffering terribly, yet faithfully. Matter of fact, he has no words of rebuke for this church because they are so persecuted. And he comes in and he says this. This is a paraphrase. Even though your immediate future is uncertain, your eternal future is not. So press on in the face of persecution, even if it costs you your life. The third church, the very present one, Jesus Christ, confronts the church at Pergamum for a compromised testimony. Here is a church dwelling in the tall shadow of pagan darkness, pagan religion. And here's the warning. Jesus is walking amidst this church and he says... Address the danger of false living in your midst. Because sooner or later, if you don't address orthopraxy, right, living, then the door is going to be open for your orthodoxy to be compromised. Either deal with and remove compromise, or compromise will subtly and surely remove you. That's the prophetical announcement of the present one to the church at Pergamum. Fourth, he walks among the gatherers of Thyatira too. And he says this to them, stop tolerating false teaching that is leading people to commit immorality and idolatry. You as a church are responsible for right doctrine. So repent. And then he moves among the church at Sardis and he confronts them for their lifeless nominalism. What does that mean? Lifeless nominalism. That means we just, we've developed habits that don't have any life. Basically they are a, they are a, They are a morgue with a steeple, as one man put it. They are a cemetery that is still holding revival meetings. That's the church at Sardis. Sardis is given five imperatives by Jesus Christ, the present one. The first one, he says, wake up. Then he says, strengthen what remains. Then he says, remember. Then he says, keep it. Remember it, now keep that. And then he says, repent. Jesus Christ then walks amidst the church at Philadelphia. I love this church 
because he commends them for their faithful service. And this is what's important. If you study uh, the Church of Philadelphia and its location and its historical setting at that time, here's a church that is completely on the, on the, on the road map insignificant. And what we learn from them is that even though they are a small, seeming, insignificant gathering, they can have Christ's approval and blessing. Isn't that an encouragement? There may not be a perfect church, but there can be a consistently faithful church. Doctrinal, loving, faithful. From the outside looking in, right? Their curb appeal was zero. From the outside looking in, they were nothing. But from God's view, and you can just read this. If you can go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and read his commendation for the church of Philadelphia. It is beautiful because God saw them as faithful and therefore they were pleasing. And then finally, he walks among the church at Laodicea, perhaps after Ephesus, the most well-known church and the condemnation they receive. And what does Jesus do there? What does the ever-present one do when he walks amidst that community of believers? He rebukes them for their apathetic self-sufficiency. And he uses what term? He's actually drawing an analogy from their water supply. And he says, you're what? You're lukewarm that I want to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I've heard damaging application from that, that God either wants you to be a child of hell or a child of heaven. He doesn't want anything in between. That, that, that is awful handling of what this text is teaching. God desires that all people come to repentance and to acknowledge His Son as Savior. He desires that, Peter says. It's not what this means. He's simply drawing an analogy from an awful, perhaps sulfuric water supply and He wants to spew it out of His mouth and He's basically saying your kind of Christianity is neither refreshing nor desirable. It's not attractive to the world. And when they look at you, they're making the assumption that then neither is Jesus satisfying or desirable. I want to spew that out of my mouth. In contrast, Jesus is all satisfying. Our desires can be fully and completely met in him alone. Not a perfect child, not a successful student, not a perfect spouse. Our desires can be fully met and, be, and find satisfaction in Him alone. Matter of fact, at the end of the book, there's this invitation, let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. So what would Jesus, the present one, as He walks here in our midst this morning, what would He say to Highlands? You know, as, we, as we try to just break the ordinance apart from simply being a mere tradition that we do together, before we commune with Him, what would He say to us? Do we have a love-deficient separatism? Are we apathetic in our self-sufficiency? Does the community look at us like sort of a rotten sulfur well, or is there a life-giving fountain that comes out from this community of believers. I don't know exactly what he'd say. Because in part that comes down to a personal individual level as well. Of course, in the church of Laodicea, it also says, it's that, that picture of, of knocking and you invite him in. Let's look at Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. 
There's two dominant images in the book of Revelation. Chapters 4 to 22 are dominated with the images of the Lamb of God and the throne of God. Okay, this is really highlighted in 4 and 5. So as you transition, you have the introduction, you have the vision of Jesus Christ, which we didn't even look at this morning, which is an incredible image. And even John is shocked. John, the beloved disciple who walked with him, who knew Jesus, even he was shocked to see Jesus like that. And then you get into the, the, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus is the present one walking in their midst, and he's giving both commendation and condemnation to most of them, and he's encouraging them to be a faithful witness to follow his example. Later on, we, see, we saw Stephen do that, okay, and we've seen others do that. Now in 4 and 5, it's sort of this, these, two, these two hinged chapters where you are taken up into the very throne room of God, and you are left speechless. And this is going to prepare, this is going to be the centering and central figure to prepare you to understand and handle properly chapters 6 through 22. Forty-three times the word throne appears. Twenty-eight times the word lamb referring to Christ appears. Together these images really provide the interpretive key to understanding the rest of this book. Jesus is the lamb, not just the lamb as an animal, not just the lamb as innocent or a nonviolent picture. But when they saw the lamb, it connects it to what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming. And he said, behold, remember, John hadn't seen Jesus yet. And he sees him walking and he says, behold, what? It's really if you're reading it in context, it seems to be an odd statement. One of the first statements out of John the Baptist's mouth But he sees Jesus walking up and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then what does he say? Who takes away the sin of the world. This is a sacrificial lamb. That's the point that John was making. So Revelation, John in Revelation picks up on that. And he talks about Jesus as the slain lamb. Look at go back to chapter one, verse five. He's actually going to look at this sacrificial nature in chapter one, verse five, where he states and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So the question would be, are you free this morning? Are you free from sin? Two phrases highlight Christ's redemptive work, the slain lamb. This is used in chapter 5, verse 6 and 12 and chapter 13, verse 8. And the sacrificial blood used in chapter 5, verse 9, 7 and 14 and chapter 12, verse 11. The idea here is that Christ's work is, some of you grew up hearing the word vicarious, which means substitutionary. You are freed by his blood. Why? Because he shed that for who? For undeserving sinners. And when you accept that gracious gift by faith, you are free. You are completely free. That's the purpose of a sacrificial lamb. It is to be sacrificed so that it can take care of the issue of sin. John the Baptist's profession of Jesus quickly moves to, in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus' first miracle. So there's, a, there's this connection, and we'll see this in Revelation as well, uh, where you have these, these images of the Lamb of God. The Lamb is being worshipped. They hear this pronouncement, the lion from the tribe of Judah. John turns around. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb as though it had been slain. All these images move forward too. It's very interesting, the wording that it uses, the Lamb's wedding. 
I don't think there's a direct connection here, but but John the Baptist talks about Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And immediately in John chapter two, Jesus does his first miracle, his first sign at a wedding. Of course, we're familiar with that. He turns water into wine. In John chapter three, Jesus explains to Nicodemus about being born again. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Meaning that the, the, this new covenant that Jesus has arrived to, to bring in, there's something miraculous, there's something of a sign. Matter of fact, it's so transformative, there's no other way to explain it except to call it new birth. Jesus, in John chapter 2, was not primarily interested in turning one beverage into another beverage. What he was showing is that he had the power to miraculously transform one thing into something better. So when you get into John chapter 3 and he's talking about new birth, Jesus is saying, I have the power, Nicodemus, even though you're religious and wealthy and powerful and intellectual, you're, you're, you're dead. I have the power, Nicodemus, to bring you to life. Something similar to turning water into wine. A transformation so complete it is called new birth and it will be at the marriage of the lamb whose marriage that we are the bride. The church is the bride where Jesus will finally display that new covenant in all its splendor. So you've got these these pictures that are connected. So the application from this sort of title, this idea is, has the slain lamb of God been applied to your heart? He is called the Passover in first Corinthians when the death angel comes like he did in Egypt. Will he see the blood applied to the doorposts of your heart and pass over you? Is he the lamb that was slain for you? Because someone has to die. Because the wages of sin is death. And in the justice of God, his wrath has to be poured out on something and God has provided a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, that will absorb the entire wrath of God for you. That's called, by the way, grace. And that is worth worshiping God for. So Christ, the faithful witness, the present one, and the Lamb of God. Now let's quickly consider Christ as King of Kings. So the one who is sovereign over life and death, the one who has power to transform water into wine and stone hearts into hearts of flesh is called in Revelation 19.16, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in the, in, the, in the midst and in the face of emperor worship, and it's interesting that John was probably written under the, 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 ruler, the rulership of Domitian, who was the first one, at least on record, that we have, who insisted he be called King of Kings. You have this title being used in the face of emperor worship and empire worship and the empire cult, where John is pointing to Jesus as the king of kings. Not any other ruler, but one ruler. Why? Because Caesar, nor a king, nor a pharaoh, nor a president is worthy of worship because they are not God. But secondly, they are not worthy of worship because they are not able to save you eternally. Only God can Hebrews 2.14 says this, that Jesus, our king, appeared to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. We've already seen him thrown into the lake of fire. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what the King of Kings does. So let me ask you, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ on that level? Well, I've heard about him ever since I was young. I think he's a pretty cool guy. He taught some really good things. I'm not sure about the whole God something, but really good. My parents have always been Christians. And my grandparents have always been Christians. And, you know, it's just kind of comfortable when we go and we sing the old songs. It just kind of brings back, you know, makes me think of my relatives. Is Jesus your king or not? Let me ask maybe further that. Further clarify that. Can you defeat death on your own? Is there anyone in all of history who has defeated death other than Jesus Christ? That's why the resurrection is so important. You say, well, I've been, you know, dabbling in a little bit of Buddhism and really like what the Buddhists teach and the whole peace and the colorful flags are cool. Has a Buddhist monk ever risen from the dead? Has there ever been a person in history who has risen from the dead with proofs other than Jesus Christ? Can you offer a sacrifice to God of church attendance or big offerings or your own righteousness that God will look at and say, yes, that is worthy for me to pour my wrath on forever? No, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his what? His mercy. Him not giving to us what we deserve. How is that possible? Jesus Christ, the slain Lamb of God, who is also the reigning King of Kings. That's how. And He is able to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So as our King, He sort of rode into death in order to emerge victorious over death. As our king, he rules over the armies of heaven and the forces of the world, ruling, directing, and governing all things. Remember last week, it took an unnamed angel to bind Satan in the abyss for a thousand years. An unnamed angel. What about God, whom that angel worships? And as our king, he will finally triumph over all his enemies and the enemies of his people. The certain triumph and reign of Jesus Christ, our king of kings and lord of lords. And here's... Here's the beautiful snapshot that we receive. Paul says this in Romans 8.37. We are more than conquerors. Why? Or how? Through Him who loved us. What He gained for us, He guards for us. So we've seen Christ as faithful witness, the present one, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings. And now finally, and I'm just reading a few verses on this final one, Jesus Christ, the coming one. Are you ready for that? He comes with clouds of glory and all his angels are with him. He is the coming one who will bring God's purposes to fulfillment and reign with God among the people of God in the new heaven and new earth. Let me just read four scripture texts out of Revelation and then we are going to Transition to the Lord's Supper. Revelation 1.7 Look, He comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for Him. Yes, Amen. Revelation 22.7 Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. 
Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. A few verses later, he says this, Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. How do we wash our robes? It's counterintuitive. You wash them. Revelation already answered this. You wash them in the blood of the sacrificial Lamb of God. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And of course, the appropriate response is exactly what John said in his response. He said, amen, come Lord Jesus. Is that your heart this morning? Amen, but wait five years. I'd really like to get married first. I understand that's a natural desire. I remember as a young unmarried man, I was like, you know, if you could just return in ten years... So, and that just shows sort of a, a childlike view of who Jesus is and what he plans to bring. And there's, there's room for that. But when you get to be like John, who's on the island of Patmos because of his faithful testimony to the word, and he's being persecuted, and he's seen what he's seen, and he's walked with Jesus, and then he saw Jesus in Revelation 1, and he's like, woe is me, I'm like a dead man. And he sees Jesus defeating all the enemies and sin and throwing death and the devil into the lake of fire, this man says, Come, Lord Jesus. We're ready. Do you know that's what we say with communion? Jesus said, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until He comes. This, Folks, we need this ordinance. Jesus knew that. We need to be reminded where our hope is. We need to be reminded after another week of just failing and falling short and being discouraged that it's not in how I feel, but it's in the fact that Jesus Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed as a sacrifice. And in that, as a gift of grace, by grace through faith, I can be saved and washed and cleansed by mercy, not even by my track record in the last seven days, but by His mercy we are washed. I hope that's your profession this morning. Revelation unveils a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And this is what it teaches us about Him. He is a faithful witness and He was a faithful witness to death for us. He is a present one who walks amidst His churches. He knows us. He comforts us. He knows the good things. He knows the things that He can say well done to, but He also knows where we're missing it. And He rebukes us. He calls us to repentance. He's the Lamb of God. There is no other sacrifice that God will accept except His Son. He's the King of kings. Does He rule in your heart? Or are you under the illusion that somehow you rule in your heart? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He is the coming One. Let's pray.